Yay, the second chapter is back. I'm your host, Kristen Duffy, and I'm thrilled to be here for season 10. My month-long break turned into two months, but only because I was busy practicing what I preach, living and working my multi-hyphenate own second chapter as an actor and producer, and then taking a few days of actual rest. But I couldn't stay away for too long because I'm always so excited to speak with women who have changed their lives and their careers after 35, so I'm thrilled to be back here with you doing it. This week's guest is quite the multi-hyphenate herself with multiple life changes and currently several simultaneous careers. When I read about Matilda Leiser's book, No Season But the Summer, I couldn't wait to get my hands on it. It's a novel that combines the Greek Persephone myth with modern day England, climate change, and ultimately a story about mother-daughter relationships. When I heard that it was also part of her second chapter story, I couldn't wait to chat with her and I'm really excited she's here with me today. Matilda is a theater maker, writer, and artistic director of Mothers Who Make. Prior to becoming a mother, she worked for 10 years as a circus aerialist, collaborating with diverse theater and dance companies and making her own work. She came down to earth in 2008 and became an associate director with Improbable. She became a mother in 2012 and considers motherhood and her writing to be far more dangerous endeavors than being a circus aerialist. This is unfair. I've spent 10 years in the air and I come down to Earth, take up writing, and I get a serious arm injury. And I couldn't type. I couldn't do it. But it was the best thing that could have happened to me because it meant I had to really slow down. I had to realise that writing is actually a creative activity. I still associated words with the academic and not really realised that I could treat an empty page like an empty rehearsal room. Hi, Matilda. Thanks for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And how are you doing? A kind of struggling with being between chapters, to be honest. Holding many different roles and threads and challenges. But I'm very glad to be on a podcast called The Second Chapter. I was actually counting up while not sleeping in bed last night. I think I'm on my fourth chapter. But but really, really glad to have the acknowledgement that life can have more than one story in it. I, I mentioned all the things that you're doing and have done in the intro, but I want to read this quote that I got from your website, which is, I am many different things at different times and sometimes several at once, which I think embodies, even though I call it the second chapter, most of the guests that come on the show because... It's very rare, even though it might be a very definitive, I was this and now I do this for my job or in my Mm. life. I don't Mm. think any of us really hold one or two roles. (laughs) No. And even when you've moved on from one identity, it it also carries on. Even when you, for me, for example, I spent 10 years being an aerialist and that's very present with me, even in this chapter that I'm just completing now, I would say. The reason that I know you and have asked you to come on is I saw that your book, No Season But the Summer, was coming out. I was incredibly excited about the story, but that kind of takes me back to your beginnings, which I know you had what you say was a house that was propped up on books as well as bricks. So tell me about your childhood growing up with words. Sure. So I was born in a little village called Islip, literally born, because my mum spanned an interesting generation where she had to fight to have her first child in hospital, because that was not the done thing then. And by the time I came along and her youngest child, she had to fight to have me at home, because that had 
the cultural shift that had taken place in that span of time. So I was born in Islip in Oxfordshire to two medieval historians. And we now, we're a family. So my parents had four children. My eldest brother is also a medieval historian. And then my sister is a very high-powered scientist. She was at Cambridge for many years. Even as Dame Ottoline Liza. Okay. Um, <laughs> so a very academic, heavy household. No and, pressure. Yeah. <laughs> and a dilapidated house that I think in some instances was literally held up with books as well as bricks. There were certainly <laughs> tables, shelves, certain furniture items that were the legs. <laughs> the legs were replaced with books. And that was that was work. You know, that was all the kind of enormous privilege that comes with growing up within Oxford as home and the challenges of the weight of that. And it took me a long time and a whole life chapter of 10 years being a circus aerialist to find my way, my own way back to words in that wasn't academic. The aerialist thing. <laughs> I know from reading about you that you went to school or went to university to actually yeah. study words, but then afterwards ran away to the circus. Now, in my mind, that's something to become an aerialist. I imagine mm -hmm. a lifetime of training and bravery because <laughs> I think it's scary. How yeah. did you do that after university and how does one run away to the circus? Yeah, so I did love words and stories. I still do. So I did want to, and when I was very little, I wanted to be a writer. So I did, it, it, I didn't just go to university and read English literature because that was the expected path, which it was, but it wasn't. I did also want to do that. But then afterwards, I did need to do something different. So really, I say I ran away to join the circus because it's a good line, isn't it? But really, <laughs> I feel it's a bit of a cheat because I went to circus school, which is not that it's not really so rebellious as just running away with a <laughs> climbing uh, on the back of a like a train carriage yeah, <laughs> in exactly, this romantic exactly, cinema way. <laughs> exactly. I do that. Partly because I don't know if I'm rebellious at heart. I love being a student. Oh, a chance to go leave university and then go to another kind of school. Brilliant. <laughs> I am 100% with you on that. I think if um, I could just study forever and ever, yeah. I'd be the most learned person in the world. I had always done a dance and theatre alongside my academic training. And, and actually, now I look back on it, part of what I find interesting is that circus for me, is so steeped in metaphors. We, we regularly talk about juggling things, juggling different life stories and challenges, balancing, supporting. There's so many metaphors that are really deeply embedded in our language, so much we barely recognize them as metaphors anymore, that actually circus is all about physically embodying. So I think that was part of my attraction to it. Coming from America originally mm -hmm. and... A lot of listeners will be listening. We think of the circus as one thing, whereas circus yeah. here is such a different art. So that's the other thing. Thank you. You've reminded me that I was going to say is that I had the idea or was received the idea at a lucky moment. There has been a sort of tremendous cultural shift in the last 30 years around circus in the UK, a bit behind Europe, really, where it has a different status again. But 
you basically where it's transitioned from a kind of seen as a commercial marginalized art form, the big top model mm-hmm. going around mm-hmm. doing a glitzy act to it's been trying to get in there as a serious art form and has to a large degree, although there's still issues around its status and a kind of ongoing uneasy relationship between what it gets called traditional circus and new circus and whether those labels are helpful or just divisive. But I, the very existence of a circus school actually was part of the kind of new circus brigade and that has really flourished since the Millennium Dome and the presence of circus within that whole celebration Mm -hmm. within the UK, that a whole cohort of circus performers came out of. And going back to your original point, undermining the idea that you had to be born into it and trained since you were a toddler. One of the things that's been fantastic about the kind of explosion of circus arts in the country is the recognition that actually they both do involve a huge amount of training and at a certain level are really accessible and really empowering because actually if you just go to a a class once a week for a year, you can do some trapeze and people find that sexy and exciting and liberating because it's still got this kind of romantic mystique about it. And also because of the literal physical experience of pulling yourself up and holding your own weight is exciting. I think partly because of the link back to the metaphors that I was talking about that, that we live by. And I do think I say that I find it really scary, but I've done a little bit of silks and things like that. Let me say it a different way. I've done like aerial yoga in a very safe, yeah, yeah. easy way. Yes. Not silks. <laughs> um, but there is something incredibly empowering yeah. about just being a little bit braver than maybe I think I am. And yeah. as someone who grew up with books and no I know that you climbed trees and did things like that. That was my sister. I was the one sitting under the tree reading the book. And I do have a few friends that have done some pretty impressive things in their adulthood. So there is a real empowerment, I think, as well. I think so, too. Yeah. To doing things with your body that you didn't think you could, maybe. Exactly. Exactly. And that you can do that without... Obviously, there's still people who train and join Cirque du Soleil or that that does take like full-on life commitment. But that doesn't negate the experience and even output of artists working at different levels with the skills. So alongside this, or while this was happening, you have your theater company, Improbable. Tell me about how that came about. Yeah, so that's actually the chapter after the aerial chapter. There was a little bit of overlap. The first show I did with Improbable, I spoke about trying to retire from the air and come down to ground. And I did about the kind of three, three minutes of aerial in that show where I, and climbed on the set quite a bit. But essentially I spent my 10 years in the air, which was fantastic. And because circus was fashionable and on the up, opened up extraordinary opportunities to perform at the National Theatre, the Globe, at Glyndebourne Opera. But ultimately also frustrated me. It started closing down the doors because of the assumptions, which I was busy trying to undo, but couldn't undo them fast enough around, around circus and circus performers. And the kind of often circus became like a thing that, you know, when I collaborated with theatre companies, we was the sexy, clever thing that was brought in to spice up the show, but had a kind of marginalized and different segregated status from the actors who were 
still were the ones that got to say the words. That's the thing is you're talking about these metaphors and things like that, and you can show them, but I can imagine that you want more than just, you are an actor, you're a performer, you're not just someone to come in and go, watch me climb up a rope, it's really sexy. Yeah, so I got frustrated by that, by how somewhere there was an assumption that some, I heard a director once saying, she's really quite intelligent for an aerialist, that kind of really base level. Nice. Thank you. Assumption. <laughs> and I did an audition once with Mark Rylance, who was amazing. But I remember him saying to me, giving me the note to think of the text like a rope that I followed. And I didn't say to him at the time because I was far too intimidated. And actually, it's the other way around for me. The words were what I started with. So I right. need to think of it. So all of that. And I started realizing that I was, although it seems daring and exciting it's easy to hide behind the skills ultimately because you can it's like an amazing party trick you can climb up a rope and hang upside down and do a twirl and actually what I was always interested in was vulnerability and that it stopped feeling vulnerable even though I was 10 meters in the air it wasn't really vulnerable so at that point I knew I had to come back down and face the fact that I come from a family of Oxford academics and I love words as well as moving that. So I came back down and the first job I got, oh, I know what I did. Sorry. I also ran away. I ran away from the circus because of a comment a director I was working with made. I went and did the absolute opposite of, I did an MA in European classical acting, which was really outside my performing identity. Going and doing it like a classical acting training felt really excitingly outside of the frame of my identity. But I guess was a reaction to what I was just talking about with the aerial, where I was like, damn it, I'm going to go and do this actor training that all these actors who get given the words have done. How did that lead to improbable? And So I did that, was at the, dra- the then drama center, which is now sadly closed down. But And that kind of led me back to words. And then there was a job. There was a job that they were making a show at the time, Improbable, called Panic, about the great god Pan. So another ancient Greek myth appropriated or explored, because that's what my novel is about as well. So they were making a show called Panic, and they were looking for some nymphs. (laughs) It was a show with Phelan McDermott as the great god Pan, and they were looking for three women to to obviously not be backing singers, but also be to, because of the way that Improbable works, actually to be instrumental and in the devising of the show. And I auditioned for that. I say auditioned with quote marks, which you can't see because you're listening. (laughs) Because the way that Improbable auditions is not like any other company that I've worked with. And um, it is a good story because one of the first things that they said to me when I went into the sort of interview audition was, this show is really a show about trying to get Phelan a new girlfriend. <laughs> and I said at the time, sorry, I can't give me the part then because I'm taken because I was with someone. And lo and behold, cut to, I am now married to Phelan McDermott. <laughs> so it, the show worked. The show worked on several levels. <laughs> on several levels it worked, yeah. And you've obviously... Yeah. Become a big part of the company and so, everything as well. Yeah. Apart from marrying Phelan, I also really 
fell in love with their way of, apart from falling in love with him, I fell in love with their way of working. And so I am now an associate director with the company and their practice and work has become really central to mine. They're really core to the next chapter that's coming up. All along the way, were you sort of writing? Because I know it's not just about the book that now exists, but snippets mm-hmm. and blogs and in all the things. Yeah. Were, was it all sort of a device thing or were you writing along the way, I guess, is the question. What, writing the book along the way or writing? Just writing? in general, was were the words coming out? So yeah, were the words actually, coming out? for the 10 years that I was in the air, I didn't write much. Although we've been moving house and um, people used to write so many letters, including me. But I do have old letters that are like actual oh physical letters. <laughs> we used to do this as a way to communicate with each other. It seems so weird. It doesn't seem weird, but it seems so impossible that, that was a thing in my lifetime. I know, exactly. So I, I guess I did write during that time because I wrote letters to people, but I didn't really write. I, and that was part of what was shocking and wonderful when I came and did that MA in European classical writing. And not, not writing, there you go, it was acting. For me, it was a reconnection to writing. Because I started noticing that I was writing, really enjoying writing extremely long notes from my student, fellow students. And uh, not long after that, I enrolled in an MFA in creative writing. As a, because I like being a student. <laughs> So was, You're definitely proving the liking being a student part. So I can get another qualification. <laughs> I just really like it when other people hold the structure for me. Because a lot of the time, especially now, which is fine, I hold the structure for other people. So it's very nice when yeah, when somebody else does it. <laughs> I, confession time. I am looking at a master's degree right now. And yeah. part of it is just to get back in a scenario where somebody else can make a few decisions for me and I can con- maybe following the structure is the better way to put it. But I'm like, oh, it would be so good just to, first I have to do this and then I have to do this instead yeah. of, okay, yeah, which project? How do I do it? What's next? Yeah. What's first? What? Yeah, just so a container. completely understand the idea yeah. of the container. Though I'm sure that yeah. the, like we've talked about, the rest of life will still be going on. Yeah. Just to have some structure like that sounds really good. I know. Yeah, I've set it up myself again, actually. The next chapter involves a bit more of that. But so I did did an MFA in creative writing and that was absolutely wonderful. It was great. And that went alongside the improbable chapter, actually. So I'm in the process of trying to move to Kent with our whole family where I'm doing two things, probably more than two, actually. But two things I'm going to name now. One is to found a creation center at the very wonderful Boar Place, which is a site in Kent. And that will be a home for Improbable, which is something we've never had. We've never had a creative home. We've been very itinerant as a company, taking our practice out into different venues and institutions and contexts. So this is like a sort of like a final chapter for the company in terms of bringing it home. Creating yeah. a home and bringing so that there's a legacy. And I loved, I read your blog about some of the signs about what it might be, some of the yeah. signs from the universe or however you want to say it about what it might be. But it sounds like the vision is such a creative, just a space that's not audience and 
show and it no it's not a venue so we don't want to run a venue we want to write kind of more the european model really which there isn't much of in the uk which is they have these creation centers in wonderful locations where that are holding space for the mess and joy and wonder of the research and the making process rather than the finished product and because improvisation is core to improbables practice and to mine as well as a writer now, improvisation, like circus, interestingly enough, it suffers from a, has a troubled status as an art form and is often not really taken seriously. It feels really exciting and important to, to found a home for it. And for all those artists and actors and theatre makers that don't have a home, that don't get to work in a prestigious building, but still need a space to work. So that's a big vision, very ambitious project. And then concurrently to that, my safe space, although it won't be safe in the sense I'm hoping it will push me. I've enrolled, guess what? That's a student. <laughs> yeah, <my> safe space. <laughs> I, safe identity. I managed to get myself onto a PhD program, but one of those practices research ones. So there's luckily at Kent University, there's a doctorate program called the Contemporary Novel Practices Research. So basically you get to write a novel and that's your doctorate. But that's yeah. a lot of pressure to write your novel. <laughs> your next novel, I should it's say. It's held and it's, I'm doing it part-time. I'm certainly not doing it over three years. I can't work that fast. Yeah, feels good. Feels good and exciting. And for me, like I've... Nah, <laughs> When did I finish my MFA, my creative writing MFA? At least, at least 10 years ago. So like, I've had a whole decade of not being a student. That's just too long. <laughs> it is time to go back. Yeah. And I think that does lead us to when I ask you off recording what your two best creations, other than your children, Mothers Who Make, and then, of course, the book that led us to this mm -hmm. conversation to begin with. Yeah. So... In whatever order you think is most appropriate, let me know about those. They grew concurrently, so it's fitting that I get to name them both because I had my first child, my son, Ridley, in January 2012. And, and I remember quite early on, he was like a couple of months old, just sitting on the bed going, how am I going to survive? <laughs> oh my goodness, my... What am I going to do? Finding a way to sustain my creative practice, output, identity felt absolutely key when I became a mother. And the kind of, I was fascinated by and distressed by the ways in which motherhood still had so little status, was still like just a mum, a sort of mm. slightly embarrassing thing versus how hard work it was versus how political I felt it was in the sense that I was so keenly aware that I was being this new person's like I interpreter of the world and that's a major and extremely powerful job and not simple and yeah very influential in terms of the future <laughs> Um, well, we were talking about that structure and that's another thing that I don't have kids having been involved in nieces and nephews and brothers and yeah. sisters and yeah. seeing so many people raised there's not a structure 
that's another place where it's, oh, wouldn't it be nice if there was a rule book? <laughs> yeah. And there's an enormous industry that's boomed out of people feeling like it'd be nice if there was a rule book. Yeah, exactly. 20, 30 years ago, parenting wasn't a verb. It was mm. just a noun or a role. And now it's like a thing. You get the yeah. parenting books that you turn to. So there was all of that. And at the same time, I was struck by the way that certainly there was a, an assumption that your creative practice had to be put on hold in being a mum or that you had to drop off your kid. You had to drop your work or drop off your child, essentially, mm -hmm. that the two were incompatible. And at the same time, I felt the two were extremely closely linked. We, you know, the language of creativity borrows from the language of motherhood. We conceive of an idea. Often people talk about giving birth to or nurturing a project. And I noticed how my children and my work required many of the same skills and resources from me in terms of sensitivity, flexibility, improvisation, stamina. They literally both keep me up at night. So I was like, so I was interested in that and really for myself, I called a kind of peer support group together, which I called Mothers Who Make because I felt there was, wasn't a space where I could be seen in both those roles, sustain both those chapters side by side. Uh, because literally that was the other thing I noticed was the sort of stark segregation of space on becoming a mum, that either I was in playgrounds or one o'clock clubs or spaces where the children were literally in the middle of the room, the adults were literally on the edge and nobody was interested in any other identity that I held other than my mumness, mm -hmm. or I was in rehearsals or meetings where I was stubborn enough to bring my child, but they weren't welcomed and they certainly weren't expected. And the only identity that anybody was interested in was my professional one. And there wasn't anywhere where I could be both or be valued or visible as both. Mm -hmm. So that felt like a real gap. Like I was like, I want that space. So that's what I created. And wonderfully and completely unintentionally that's bloomed into a an international movement and there's now mothers who make groups in australia as well as across the uk so it's become a kind of ongoing project and for me piece of research into how those two identities speak to each other and i'm just got some funding which is very exciting to introduce a kind of forward slash into the names so it's m slash others who make because I've realized that the word mother is highly problematic for many people for many reasons. And actually, the thing that's at the core of my interest is how caring and creativity speak to each other and how this thing that is often marginalized from creative practice and seen as something you should leave outside the door, how actually, if we could learn from the extraordinary skills and resources that people hold in caring roles develop, and if that could feed into the cultural landscape, then I'm excited by what that might, what changes that might start to uh, make happen. And it's interesting you say that it was completely unintentional what's happened, but I see so many small movements that someone does out of, a mother does out of necessity that really do create a movement. And it's just yeah. these small things that, you know, maybe because we need to do it. And like Sophia, I can't think of her surname. But she's an ultra runner and recently she did a race, but her child's still breastfeeding and she does these races that last 24 hours and more. So she <laughs> breastfed her daughter, her daughter, I think on the trail 
And it became this thing amongst athletes that here's this woman, everybody was talking about it. Yeah. But it's, it's something out of necessity, but it shows other women that like, you're still an athlete or you're still a creator or you can still be a politician. You know what? Everybody has to start accepting that women are in these settings or carers of any type, as you say, are in these settings. And we need to learn to make our space more fluid. Yeah, absolutely. And there is this kind of polarizing of the personal and the professional that I think is profoundly unhelpful because the, I think everybody loses out actually. I think obviously the person, you know, the mothers doesn't get access to the profession anymore or has to absent themselves. But also I think the profession, whatever it is, loses out. I think the Obviously, I have most experience in the field of the arts, but that that landscape is poorer for marginalizing those people that are having to step out because of their caring responsibilities. Yeah, Yeah, there's a lot of talent and a lot of variety that gets lost. That and also just on a sort of the practice level, part of why I'm working with Improbable is because I feel that they implement a kind of ethic of care into how they make their shows and make their work. And that benefits everyone, regardless of their identity and background. So I mentioned fluidity, but yeah, you said that the novel and Mothers Who Make was happening at the same time. Yeah. How were you weaving No Season But the Summer into your life at this point? Supported each other, I would say. So I did start Mothers Who Make and the novel began pretty much at the same time because when I started the novel, I had absolutely no idea I was writing a novel. Didn't think I possibly could. When I first enrolled on as a student on the MFA, I, which was pre, just pre-motherhood actually. And then I took some time out from it when I became a mum and went back to it. But when I first started that, I, in coming back to words, I still have carried the burden of my Oxford acad- academic past. And I thought I couldn't write anything except nonfiction because mm. essay writing was kind of what I knew best. So I assumed that's what I and letters uh, would do. Yeah, and letters. (laughs) Yeah. And I had a kind of epiphany, actually, to weave in another live chapter. What happened when I went on this writing MFA was I got RSI. My arms started hurting from typing. And I thought it was most unfair. It was triggered because because of my aerial. So I used to get very over-pumped forearms from climbing the rope. And somehow typing triggered the same kind of response. But worse. Interesting. Yeah. So I was like, this is unfair. I've spent 10 years in the air and I come down to earth, take up writing and I get a serious arm injury. Yes. <laughs> That's not fair. And I couldn't type. I couldn't do it. But it was the best thing that could have happened to me because it meant I had to really slow down. I had to realize that writing is actually a creative activity. And it meant I also realized that I could apply everything I'd learned as a circus artist and a theater maker to my writing, which I hadn't, somehow or other, I had still kept them segregated. I had still associated words with the academic and not really realized that I could treat an empty page like an empty rehearsal room. That's such an interesting way to think about it. Yeah. So that happened just before I became a mum. I started producing work that was definitely, once I let go into it and went, oh, this is also an improvisation. 
I don't need to have an essay plan. I don't need to. I, in fact, I not only do I not need to edit as I go, I really shouldn't edit as I go. The editing stays out the room or although that's not really possible, but at least I play with the bringing this embracing of the unknown, not knowing what's happening. Everything I'd explored as a, as I said, on stage to the written word. It makes me think of this is in a rehearsal room, typically with a script, but the words get it up on its feet. You can intellectualize a script so much, but until you get it up on its feet. And so it's almost like the concept of, I've just got to let my words get up on their feet and then I can think about them. Yeah, I can play with them and not think about them beforehand. Yeah. So I started doing that as a practice and discovered that lo and behold, I wasn't writing nonfiction at all. I wasn't even writing fiction. I was writing kind of quite fantastical things is what started emerging on the page. And I developed a writing practice, which felt really akin to the rope practice. You just turn up and write every day, just like I'd turn up and climb a rope. It it was really helpful to think of it as the similar kind of training. And I did a week with a really wonderful writer through my MFA called Linda Barry, who's written a book called What It Is. Mm-hmm. And she got me writing by hand again rather than typing and really being able to to see it as that kind of training and that the things that came out as a kind of wonderful byproduct, but not the focus. You turn up and you do the right, you do the work, you keep your hand moving and um, uh, the hand on its feet. <laughs> <laughs> so I had a word bag through the, Linda Barry that I made that had, it was full of words and I would, every day I would pull out a word and I would start writing. And one day the word said spring and that word began what then became a novel. And I literally pulled it out as it happens, had no idea at the time, A, that I was writing a novel or that I was growing a baby. But I did grow, pull that word out the same week that I conceived my son. So the book and the baby, the motherhood did really begin together, but neither of them were planned like I didn't know I was making a book or a boy at that point. <laughs> and as I said, a Mothers Who Make emerged from my need to keep writing once I was mothering with a child out in the world as opposed to inside me. And it did steadily support me as well as me supporting it through the writing, which happened very slowly on my children's bedroom floor over the 11 years since then. You talked a lot about myth and metaphor. No Season But the Summer is based around one of my favorite myths, the Persephone myth. Spring is what it began it. Yeah. What drew you to the myth? Because motherhood and there's so many things around everything that seems to be part of your life that have gone into this novel. Yeah. So what drew me to the myth was the centrality of the mother-daughter relationship in it, because that's both the importance of motherhood in my life, but also my relationship with my mother has been really powerful and formative. And I lived with my mum while I was writing the book, actually. She was being a really wonderfully active granny and did a lot of childcare to enable me to write. So that's been ongoing. And like many novels, it's a sort of scantily disguised memoir. And I was, I guess what specifically drew me to the myth, aside from that, is that unlike many origin myths, because it is an origin myth. It's an ancient Greek origin myth of the seasons. Because, because Persephone goes down to the underworld every autumn 
Demeter, the goddess of the harvests, is in grief and therefore all the leaves fall from the trees. And then because she comes back every spring, the buds return. But in most origin myths, for example, you know, how the elephant got its trunk, the, at some point the elephant had an ordinary sized nose and then it got stretched. And every elephant since then has already has a long trunk. It doesn't get re-stretched. Right. Like every time an elephant's <laughs> born, it's not like, okay. And now here we go. But in this, because of the nature of the myth and the seasons, I was really fascinated by its lack of closure. Mm-hmm. Because it's not a done deal. Like the, if you take the myth seriously, it's still happening. Every year in order to create autumn, Persephone goes down to the underworld and every year in order for spring to happen, she comes back to her mother. So I was, because of the also lack of closure in a mother-daughter relationship, I found that really fascinating. And the very first scene I wrote, which has some relationship to the very first scene in the novel now, was of Persephone coming back up to the earth. And what struck me straight away was, my God, that's a heck of a commute. I came to your book signing and actually we spoke about that because the idea of actually crawling your way, which I never thought of. I have this like romanticized vision almost of what this myth is, though there's a lot of things about it that might not be so romantic. But to (laughs) think of her actually clawing her way back through the blackness of the underworld and and being coming out to the light. and Yes. Anyway, (laughs) very powerful imagery to think of it in such a different way yeah but it's all there in the myth Mm -hmm. i think that's what i love about those stories that have survived in different versions for so long is that they're yeah it's all in there it is something i made up and also not at all it's all that's what the myth says she does (laughs) true i just hadn't pictured it that way and it came out very interestingly when you did something about it that that makes it more modern is obviously the that there is an environmental element that yep. it, we're yep. facing now. I know that you don't want to guide what people take out of the novel. Yeah. How did the environmental thing, how is that an important part of yeah. it? Obviously, it's a very something I, like anybody, I feel like anyone writing now can, you can't really ignore it anyway. It's, it is the sort of, frame within which we're writing and living but then also certainly didn't intend to write a novel about the climate crisis that's a really terrifying idea both because I don't feel qualified in terms of my knowledge but also I think literature or art that has a kind of that is issue based can be wonderful but is also really difficult sometimes Mm -hmm. because of that thing that you just named that's important to me which is that I don't decide already what the reader or audience should take away from it and it seems to me that with issue-based work you're very hard not to decide not to that that for that not to be a statement that I want you to go away and think this and I don't want that so the mother and daughter relationship was key for me but also I realized at a certain point I needed to commit to this idea that they were living now and that once I made that commitment that immediately made it feel much more dangerous in a really exciting way, not least because if you're dealing with that relationship now, this given that this is an ancient Greek origin myth of the seasons, you can't ignore, really, really can't ignore the climate crisis. Yes. So 
then that added a whole other kind of dimension to it that I wanted to explore. And then I guess the last thing that when I realized I needed to find a contemporary narrative that could match the myth, I was really excited when I started researching the stories of recent environmental activists. And actually, the boyfriend I was with before I married Fela McDermott was, uh, was up there in the trees in the Newbury protest of the 90s. So I had some personal experience of that work. I um, was really drawn to how the tactics of living in the treetops or digging tunnels had so many rhymes, metaphorically, with the myth of up and down. And like circus, really, were these larger-than-life but in real life, like real life myth kind of thing. They're like, the, there's that famous Italo Calvino book, The Baron in the Trees, about somebody that lives in the treetops. Mm-hmm. And I guess I love the idea that people really did. People did go and live in the treetops and they built walkways between their homes. And it's the same impasse that drew me to circus, that all those metaphors made real. We turn into figure of speeches. And I find that fascinating. So I'd ask you to do your life story chronologically, but it's also interesting because the book isn't quite that way. Sort of the back and forth and the mother-daughter telling stories. and Yeah, and I guess just one more thing on that, which is that that there's a lot of mythical retellings are really trendy now, (laughs) which is very strange for me to do something fashionable because I don't normally do fashionable things. But I think a lot of those keep the characters set in the past. And I'm, I guess I'm interested in rather than keeping it in the past and, but telling it in a modern way, mm-hmm. you know, what the challenge of finding the mythic in the moment. So rather than bringing the myth up to the moment, actually bringing the moment to the myth, if that makes sense. Which is perfect. Cause as you said, it's not a closed story as far as what the myth no, is. And I think it's, I, for me, if there is any sort of, political or you should go away with this statement (laughs) that I would dare to make it's about I think we need to recognize recognize the mythic that is present in our everyday life that the art isn't something separate the kind of dreaming isn't something that you can segregate it's everywhere woven through everything that's which goes so much back to the quote about being all different things at once that we started with art life career, creativity. It's yeah. just, as you mentioned with Mothers Who Make, mm. just that we're not, we shouldn't be separated. This is no. professional me. This is personal me. This is yeah. creative me. Yeah. For someone who is worried about using words, I have one more quote out of <laughs> someone who reviewed the book. This is a book to savor, to languish in the sensuousness of the language. It seems at least that you have you ran away to the circus. Mm. You ran away from the circus, mm. running away from words for a while, but it definitely feels like you've come back and found the respect and maybe the joy that comes with using yeah. words. Yeah, certainly they matter to me a lot. The only thing I have, I have a million things. I want to sure. go and discuss the myths of a million hours over coffee or something. But the only thing I will keep you and ask you is if you brought a quote for me today. Oh, Yes. So I've struggled with this a bit. I have to say, I'm going to go for something that is, it's not an easy like quote to attribute to somebody, but it's the thing that I was told when I first came into that improbable rehearsal room 
what I was told when I went into the improbable rehearsal room for the first time was there's only four things you have to do. Only four things you ever have to do in this rehearsal room, on stage, in life. And it actually comes from The Fourfold Way by Angelese Ariane. And are you ready for it? The four things are? I am ready. (laughs) This is knowledge I think I need. (laughs) Number one, turn up. Number two, pay attention. Mm -hmm. Not like in school, but listen, like really pay attention. Uh, Number three, tell the truth. Number four, don't be attached to the results. It's number four that's the real bummer for me. It's the really difficult one. Really? The others are quite hard The others are not easy. Yeah. The others, to do them really well is like a lifetime's practice. Yes. But but yeah, number four, I feel you've got to be enlightened as well. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I I spent too much of my life trying to be a perfectionist and I'm so much trying to undo all the damage that trying to be perfect has done. But it's why it is my quotes that I offer because I do find them really useful touchstones to come back to. And I think there's probably a lot of people listening that will feel the same way. Yeah. So hopefully we won't have to wait quite as long for your next novel. Not quite as long, but (laughs) quite a while. (laughs) But best of luck with everything that's happening, getting the space together, the continued success of Mothers Who Make, and the continued success of No Season But The Summer. Thank you. But I do, I just, last plug, you'll have to wait a while for the novel. I do write a blog every month, so you can do that. All the links will be in the show notes. It was really great talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time out. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. So here's a little bonus for you. Matilda spoke throughout our episode about being a mother, but what you didn't hear in the final edit was some of her interactions with her daughter, who was very busy in the background with the important job of naming a new cat. By the time we'd finished recording, it seems that she'd come to a decision, though we'll have to ask Matilda if the name stuck. Oh, the name is decided. What is it, love? Artemis. Artemis. It means my first thing, and she's a black cat, and and I love them, and second. There's a goddess called Artemis, so... That's true. Right on the Greek myth thing. So my cat is technically a goddess. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, tell a friend, follow us on Instagram, and sign up for the Second Chapter newsletter. The Second Chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them with a specific focus on women 35 plus. You can find us at thesecondchapterpodcast.com and slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.